Welcome to the Browser Podcast. The series is called Writers We Admire because it gives me a chance to talk to writers we admire. I'm Robert Cottrell, editor of the Browser, and I'm talking today with the essayist, critic, poet, Adam Kirsch. Adam, thanks for making the time to be here. My pleasure. It's an honor to be in that group of uh, writers. Well, I tell you what, Adam, I was looking at the archives of the browser, and I re- reckon that we must have admired and recommended pieces by you at least as much and maybe more than any other writer. And the common thread there is this amazing series of pieces you're doing for Tablet, Dafyoni, where, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're reading a page of the Talmud each day and writing your own commentary on it, which is a fantastic achievement. I mean, every one of them fills me with delighted thoughts. How do you do it? Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Um, yes, I'm, I'm doing this project, which is based on a cycle of reading the Talmud called Daf Yomi. Daf Yomi is Hebrew for a page a day. And it's a way of reading the Talmud that people around the world do, and it gets you through the entire Babylonian Talmud in about seven and a half years, based on the number of pages. And it's um, a way for people who are not experts to experience the Talmud, because if you grew up in a very religious Jewish home, you attend a a yeshiva, Jewish school, you'll study the Talmud. But for other people who might have other connections to Judaism, but not that level of uh, expertise, the Talmud is often a closed book, as it was to me before I started doing this. So I, I sort of had the idea, what if I were to pursue this cycle of study and then write about it for people who would be interested in knowing what's in the Talmud. And it's been uh, really fascinating. I've been doing it for about five and a half years now, closing in on the end of the cycle in 2020. You were not brought up studying the Talmud in childhood, so you're coming to this more or less fresh, at least in this level of detail. That's right. I I grew up in a, a conservative Jewish home going to Hebrew school, which involves Hebrew study, but not Talmud study. And I think that for most people, unless you go to an Orthodox uh, school or a Jewish day school, you probably will not study the Talmud um, as a child. So it's I actually, I think, a big dividing line among Jews that if you have a certain level of piety or education, you'll be familiar with the Talmud, and if not, not. And one thing I wanted to do was to sort of bridge that divide and and open it up to people who would not have had previous uh, encounter with it in a classroom. And there's already centuries of commentary and discussion. Do you try and familiarize yourself with what's been said, or are you deliberately coming to each page as fresh as you can? Well, to really study the Talmud is a lifetime's sort of endeavor, and uh, as you say, there's commentary upon commentary over centuries and even millennia of commentary. The edition that I use is an English translation of the edition by Adin Steinsaltz, who's an Israeli rabbi. And what he does is he synthesizes a lot of the traditional commentaries in the form of footnotes. So when I'm reading a page of, of Talmud in English, I will see notes that say, what did, for example, Maimonides say about this passage? What did Rashi say about this passage? And other important commentators. So the way I'm approaching it is not full dress Talmud study, which involves reading commentaries alongside the original text, but I do get a bit of a sense of what people have said about it over the years. And what's the balance of the feedback, the mailbag you get on this? Is it scholars saying, you got that wrong, or is it lay readers saying, hey, thanks for introducing us? You know, it's been a mixture. Um, I've often had notes from people saying, 
um, you didn't get this quite right, or you need to take something else into account from people who know quite a lot about Talmud. But even among those people, I've also gotten appreciative uh, messages saying, thank you for doing this. I think people appreciate that I'm writing about it in a respectful spirit, not um, attempting to sort of bring 21st century standards to an ancient text and say all the ways that the Talmud is wrong or differs from the way we think about things now, but to sort of try to get into the mental world of the people who wrote it and understand what they were thinking about religion and also about ethics and, and various other subjects. In many ways, I think you're performing the reverse feat. You're showing that the kind of ideas and arguments that are present in the Talmud actually do have relevance to exactly the kind of dilemmas we have today. Yes, and in fact one thing that I've found interesting is that whenever there's a something that might seem controversial or that you might want to argue against today, the rabbis of the Talmud were already aware of that. They had their own arguments, their own ways of dealing with things in the Bible, for instance, they found problematic. They would often interpret the Bible in ways that made things conform to their own moral standards. So the Talmud is really a stage in the evolution of Judaism. Could I ask you a kind of two-level question here, one of which is what are the specific highlights for you of the pages that you've read. I mean, some episodes stand out for me, the Gordox in particular. Mm. Um, but at a higher level, what's the kind of general lesson that you've taken from the reading so far? Well, the Talmud covers an enormous variety of subjects. Um, it's, it's divided into a number of sections, which are divided into tractates, which are divided into chapters. And it covers not just what we might think of as religion, but really all of uh, law, including civil law, criminal law, and rituals, holidays, um, things like what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, everything from that to how you divide up property if there are two claimants on it, or what to do about missing property, what kind of crimes deserve the death penalty, all of that is in the Talmud. Plus, in addition to that, there's material known as Agadah, which is legends, um, moral sayings, aphorisms, uh, there's some mythology, and there's some discussion of magic. So it really ranges very widely, and you can find almost anything about human life somewhere in the Talmud. People uh, traditionally refer to it as an ocean, the ocean of Talmud, to give a sense of how vast it is. For me, the things that stand out uh, first are the, the moments when I resist something in the text, when I've encountered something that makes me sit up and say, this is very different from the way we think about things now, or this is not how I would think about a, a subject, a moral subject or a legal subject. And then I, what I always try to do is to try to understand why the rabbis of the Talmud thought the way they did and why they said the things they did about a subject. So a good example would be Recently, not long ago, in the cycle of Dafyomi reading, we read a tractate called Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme Jewish court in ancient times, composed of 71 rabbis. And it was the court that had the power to exercise the death penalty. So in, the, in this tractate talking about the Sanhedrin, there's a lot of discussion of the death penalty. One of the topics that comes up is which is the most severe form of execution. Um, the Bible provides for four forms of execution, stoning, burning, strangling, and decapitation. I'll take decapitation. Yes, I think that seems like the, the best choice. So the rabbis talk at length about which of these is meant to be the most serious punishment, and they differ among themselves as they often do. But I think that in the end they decide that stoning is the worst punishment. And the way that they talk about it is not which would be the worst to experience subjectively, but which crimes 
or demand stoning and therefore which are the most serious crimes. So when you have things like that, you're really getting a window into how the rabbis of the Talmud thought about what are the worst sins, what are the worst crimes, what are the worst things that a Jew can do um, to deserve this kind of punishment. And it, it is not just a legal question, but it's a whole ethical and moral debate. I guess it must have shocked you a bit reading that and thinking, how can I possibly make a bridge between my sensibility and this sensibility? Well, it's interesting. So stoning is something that we now associate with only the most barbaric kind of terrorism, right? Like we might think ISIS would stone someone. If you read the Bible, you find that stoning is indeed prescribed for certain kinds of sins, especially some sexual sins and some sins against God, uh, heresy, blasphemy, and things like that. The rabbis of the Talmud say that they can't eliminate this punishment because it is in the Bible, but often what they are doing is they're trying to moderate what's in the Bible. So obviously they too felt that this was a particularly horrible and difficult thing to reckon with. And so they try to make the stoning process easier in certain ways. So one of the things that they say is that the person who's to be stoned has to be fed um, wine and drugs. So in other words, to sort of sedate them or make them lose consciousness before the stoning takes place. So it's not, it's not exactly uh, doing away with it, but it's in the direction of something more humane and humanitarian. And we often find that in the Talmud, that what the rabbis are trying to take the text of the Bible and reinterpret it in ways that they feel are, is morally or humanly more acceptable. And has reading the Talmud in this depth changed the way that you live your life? It hasn't changed my uh, religious practice, I have to say, but it's definitely changed the way I think about Judaism and, and understand Judaism, because I think that if you're raised Jewish, you're raised with a specific version or, or uh, flavor of Judaism, depending on your particular background. And for me, the reading the Talmud has been a way of understanding that, in fact, Judaism is something much bigger than that. It's much bigger than what American Jews do in the 21st century. It's had many different currents, many different interpretations, many different practices. And the things that are in the Talmud, some of them are still practiced today. Others have been refined away by various commentators or interpreters over the years. A famous example is um, the Talmud takes polygamy for granted, as the Bible does, the idea that a man might have more than one wife. And then in the Middle Ages, a famous rabbinic authority declared that in Europe, Jews were not allowed to have more than one wife. And that's usually understood as a reaction to a response to Christian values of monogamy, that Jews coming and living in Christian Europe wanted to fit in. They wanted to adopt practices that wouldn't make them seem backward or odious to their neighbors. And so they adapted Judaism to fit those circumstances. So the Talmud is not a rule book for the way Judaism is practiced today. It, there have many, been many centuries of innovation and interpretation between the writing of this text, which took place in the first centuries of the Common Era and today. But it does give you a sense of certain problems and issues that Jews have dealt with over the centuries. And another reason why I've been interested in it is that for many, many years, for centuries, Talmud study was the primary form of advanced Jewish education. If you were a Jewish student and you had the opportunity for advanced education, which not everyone did, you would have to have the talent for it, you'd have to have the financial resources, and you'd have to be male because only men were traditionally allowed this kind of education. The Talmud is what you would study, and people would and still do spend a lifetime studying it. And to know what kinds of things my ancestors or our ancestors were thinking about, what kinds of things they were imagining, to me is a, a way of making a connection with that past. Now you were approaching the 
Talmud in many respects as literature, you're working as a literary critic, Mike, which I think reflects your broader vocation. You're primarily a literary critic. How has that changed with the internet age when suddenly everybody is a critic? Do you think your role as a, as a literary critic has changed over the last 10, 15 years? Well, my sort of career has been the has sort of spanned the era of the internet. When I first started writing in the late 1990s, the internet was just starting to become popular. And so I've, I've seen journalism and criticism and, and literary writing change in response to advances in internet technology, social media. My sense is that criticism itself may play a different role in the literary ecosystem than it once did. People don't look to specific critics for judgments about what to read as much as they once did. But in a way that is liberating for criticism, I think. I, I, I don't know that telling people what to read or making judgments about what are the best books, that to me that's not always the most interesting part of what a critic does. Really criticism is about writing about life and about the kinds of things that literature discusses through the medium of texts. In other words, where a novelist might invent a story and characters or a poet might use meter and rhyme, a critic is using already existing texts to think about issues and experiences and feelings and ideas. So to me, literary criticism is a branch of literature. It's it pursues the same goals as literature using different means. And that part of literary criticism, I think, has not been changed by the rise of the internet and social media. It still requires length, just in terms of how long you're writing. You can't do real literary criticism in a tweet, for example. You could do a thumbs up, thumbs down, or four stars, something like that. But you can't really get into what makes a text interesting or important without devoting some amount of space to it. I think that maybe that kind of writing in general is not as important to our culture as it once was. If you go back to say the 50s or 60s when you had an ecosystem of literary magazines like Partisan Review and Encounter that were largely devoted to literary essays and literary criticism, I think there was more of it and people paid more attention to it in the past than they do now. It still does exist, but it's a minority taste, let's say. So you're not telling people, buy this book, don't buy this book. You're saying, what are the ideas in this book? Are they good ideas? And maybe as a second-order question, how well are they How well are they realized? Yeah. Yes, and it depends on the venue and it depends on the length. If you're writing a 800-word review for a newspaper, um, it's more like a news story. You're just sort of reporting on what is this book, what's in it, and, and why you might be interested in it. If you have the opportunity to write a, a full-length essay, compare several different books, or take on a larger subject, then I think the element of news or recommendation is less important and you're really doing something rather different with the text. Now you made an interesting point there that there was, uh, well many interesting points, but the one I'm going to seize on from that last sentence is you were remarking that the sort of the raft of literature in the 1950s or 1960s sort of floated on a sea of informed, academic, deliberative criticism. Now that, see, at least has drained. I mean, you don't find really serious, lengthy criticism of ideas, at least in the mainstream press. Do you think that that has actually 
affected the quality of literature? Because it strikes me that the books being written and published today are not necessarily worse than the ones being published 50 years ago. How can that be? It's an interesting question. It's one of those things that's very hard to gauge because we only know, or one only knows, what's around one. Uh, and when you think about how things used to be in the past, there's always a certain element of imagination or projection. Uh, it's easy to think that the past was better than the present. I think that probably the quality of imaginative literature doesn't depend very much on criticism. It doesn't depend on what people are saying about it. But the existence of something like a literary culture does depend on criticism and the sense that there are people out there who are interested in literature, that they're talking about it, that it matters to them, and even that it has something to do with issues of politics and ethics, that all of these things are bound up with literature. If you read people like Lionel Trilling, for example, they made a drama of ideas, I mean, a drama of literature, and they were living in an age when there were enough people interested in that drama that they could make an intellectual community. Now I think people who are interested in literature have less of a sense of community. Um, it's more of an individual taste, and that is reflected in the localization of literature. I mean, if you look at American fiction, how much of it comes out of Brooklyn? Um, how much of it comes out of one or two neighborhoods? And the socioeconomic basis of literature, who can afford to devote their lives to writing novels, how they support themselves while they're doing it, what's the role of academia in that and in teaching literature, all of those things, the sort of the substructure of literature has changed, I think, since the 50s and 60s because it's much harder to make a living as a writer now. So it's more of a coterie pursuit, one might say. That doesn't necessarily mean that the books aren't as good, but it does mean that people write differently and about different things, perhaps, than they did 50 or 100 years ago. Mm. You, you wrote a, a, an appreciation study of Trilling, didn't you? I did. Do you think there's any thinker working today with his power? I don't think there's anyone who's doing exactly the same thing that, that Trilling did or that certain other intellectuals did half a century ago, which was really to be a Matthew Arnold type intellectual, someone who talks about large issues of society and culture and politics through the lens of literature. It's hard to think of someone doing exactly that. There are, I think, very good and, and interesting literary critics. I would think of James Wood as a, maybe the preeminent example, but he is usually talking more about the art of fiction specifically. And I think maybe this is partly a change in style and fashion that, that uh, the kind of high seriousness that Trilling represented now seems a little bit musty and out of date. Uh, if you go back to his essays, they might seem a little excessively formal. People just don't write the same way anymore. Now, Adam Kish, we admire you. Who do you admire? Who are the writers that you think are both excellent and undervalued? I'll take poetry first. There are certain poets who I admire very much and uh, who I would love to have a chance to tell people to read these poets. A.E. Stallings, who uh, might be familiar to some readers for her contributions to the Times Literary Supplement, is a, a wonderful poet, an American who lives in Greece and translates Greek classics as well as writing her own poetry. There's an a American poet called Joshua Megan, who I like very much, who I think is an excellent at form in a way that few poets are today. In terms of criticism, I think that there are critics out there who I always read with pleasure and profit. Uh, James Wood is one on art, Jed Pearl, who can now be found writing for the New York Review of Books often. Daniel Mendelssohn also writes for the New York Review of Books in other places. Ruth Franklin is a critic who I admire. 
And then in fiction, I, I find myself drawn lately to writers who are sort of experimenting with the boundary between fiction and nonfiction or fiction and memoir. And I'm particularly looking forward to the new book by Sheila Hetty, who's a Canadian novelist. Her book, How Should a Person Be?, which came out several years ago, uh, got a good deal of attention for the way that it incorporated things like emails and transcripts of conversations into an autobiographical novel. She has a new book coming out called Motherhood, which I'm eager to read. Fantastic. Well, Adam Kirsch, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us, a writer we admire. Thank you. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to the browser by going to thebrowser.com. The browser recommends the best five or six pieces of writing worth reading each day. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. And for the next two years, go to tabletmag.com to follow Adam's Daffy And I'm so glad we've got two more years of that.